Hey dreamers, I'm Joe Pardo and my guest today is making his dreams come true by being a real life Wizard of Oz. Love it. Dreamers, I'd like to welcome to the show Steve Sims. Hey, how you doing? I'm I'm wonderful. How about yourself? <laughs> I'm I'm fun and frantic, living the dream sitting here in LA with the sunshine. Oh, you're in LA. Okay. I, I didn't I realize am. that you're <laughs> You're here in the states. I I assumed you were in Australia. Oh well, I don't know why I'd be there, seeing as I'm British. But fair enough. Oh, there you go. Okay, so so yeah, the accent. Uh, yeah, okay. And I should know this because I talk to an Australian every week. So there you go. I yeah, you ask him. It. Ask him if he's British and see if he's happy. <laughs> well, Steve, why don't you get started by giving some background about yourself? Wow. Um, I'm a bricklayer from East London um, that traveled the world. And now for the past 20 odd years, my job has been, well, they call it a job. uh, But my my role I play in this playground is to make rich people's fantasies and dreams come true. So I've done things like uh, sent people down to see the Titanic, got them married in the Vatican. Um, I've uh, arranged, I've taken over entire museums just to set up a dinner table uh, for a very exceptional dinner. I put you on stage with your favorite rock star. I partner with Elton John every year with his Oscar party. I've been the official concierge of the Grammys, the New York Fashion Week, Ferrari Cavallino Classic, a whole bunch of playing, really. Oh, wow. That is quite a, <laughs> uh, a resume there. It's fun. That so so okay so let's talk about uh is is so it's Bluefish Group is is the name of the company yeah that's the holding yeah the company's called the Bluefish um Bluefish Group is just the holding company for that so you find us at the Bluefish oh okay okay so so why don't we get started uh, going uh, you know how how did the, the this Bluefish get started um it was you know very easy there was no business plan to it I had. Uh, Talked my way into a job in Hong Kong, landed on the Saturday, was fired on the Tuesday, and now I was just wandering the streets um, trying to work out what I was going to do, seeing as I was a young lad now sitting the other side of the planet. Um, Ended up working on the door because, uh, thankfully, no one can see me at the moment, so uh, I'm well built for door work. Um, And I just suddenly started speaking to people on a very grassroots level, and they would be like, hey, Steve, do you, do you know how to get into this party? Or do you know the best event? Or you... And I'd be like, yeah, it's down there. You know, oh, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, I could organize that. It, I just started that way. And then the requests got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I accepted them. And I suddenly found myself, while still trying to get a day job, I was now traveling the world doing things like the Monaco Grand Prix, the Cannes Film Festival, uh, Polo in Stad. Yeah, before I knew it, I was just traveling around the world, just getting people, cool people. I don't work with uh, a-holes, but cool, real people into things or making things happen for them or fulfilling fantasies or you know, making up a fantasy island. I just ended up getting into that. Wow. I mean, that, that definitely... <laughs> 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 so... so uh... So did you spend most of your time growing up in, in England uh, or, or were you a world traveler before uh, you decided to go to oh, Hong Kong? Oh, hell no. Before, before I went to Hong Kong, in 17 years, I had gone with my family to Spain once. Other than that, I'd never left England. So 
Uh, I didn't know anything about, yeah, I'd never been on a plane. Um, and I got this job in Hong Kong and I was like, wow, this is an airport. I remember once when I was younger, wondering what an airport was like and just going, just driving up there one day and just sitting at the terminal, just watching all these people travel, just dreaming in my head. Oh, I wonder where they're going. Oh, that person must be important. Yeah, you know, I just never had any experience of travel. Um, and then all of a sudden I was plonked right in the middle of it. So it was an eye opener. But, but funny enough, my lack of knowledge, my lack of comprehension and intelligence in travel also eliminated any preconceived fear or concern about doing stuff. So people would go, oh, I'm going to fly to, you know, let's, let's go to India. I would have no worry about it because I wouldn't know about how horrible it was to travel or any horror stories about losing your luggage. I never had that experience. So I was very ignorant to, to all of those things. So the idea of me just jumping on the plane and going somewhere, I just was excited like a little kid because I'd never done this before. And I still am. I'm 51 years old. And quite simply, I'm a 51-year-old kid. Still bloody love it. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. That. You know that's a so so how how did you wind up getting a job in Hong Kong then for for being a kid that was <laughs> landlocked to uh, England? So I was a bricklayer and I didn't want to be a bricklayer. Um, <laughs> I just my whole family were bricklayers. It's a tough job, uh, and in England where it has this habit of raining most of the year, it's an appalling industry to work in, um, and it really is hard work. So I knew I wanted to get out of it because all my family were bricklayers and I did not want this to be the rest of my life. So I just tried applying for everything. I had nothing to lose. You know, you back someone in the corner when they've got nothing to lose, that's when they're most dangerous. And I was this bricklayer from East London that applying for a job as president of the United States, I had nothing to lose. I wasn't going to get it. But, you know, if I didn't try, I didn't get anywhere. So I was applying for anything and I got this job as a stockbroker, this was in the 80s, in Hong Kong for a British bank. I talked my way into it with my dad's suit on, managed to get the job. I turned up on the Monday for orientation. They realized I had no idea what I was doing, and they fired me on the Tuesday. So <laughs> I, just took, I just took a real shot. I was a real... Do you know, the funny thing is I, I, I don't go to Vegas very often. I never gamble. But I was always taking risks when I was younger. I always wanted to see how high it was by not looking over, but by jumping off. Um, I was that idiot. Um, lack of intelligence, lack of experience, full on ignorance. I was jumping into everything. And I've often said now, there's no such thing as failure. It's just feedback. So <laughs> I was the guy that fell over three times. But on the fourth time, I knew how to stand up. And so while everyone's analyzing and building these uh, schedules and these vision boards and these business plans based on algorithms, how you're going to be successful in 20 years time, I've already tried it 10 times, screwed up nine and got it right the 10th. <laughs> so oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. You know, it's funny, though, the, the bricklayer thing, because you look like you could be a bricklayer. You're built like one. <laughs> yeah, I'm built like a wall. Yeah. You know, and that's the funny thing, you know, when. I'll be on the phone sometimes and people will hear the British voice and all of a sudden they'll confuse me and Hugh Grant and then <laughs> meet me and realize that, thank God, it's daylight. You know, I'm, I'm 
I'm not the. It's if anyone out there doesn't know what I look like, and you you do, so you can tell me if I'm lying here. I'm 235 pound of ugly, bald, British with tattoos, earrings, eyebrow piercings, and a, and a ginger goatee beard. So I'm I'm not the most attractive morsel in the planet. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd say that all that, but but distinctive. <laughs> uh, distinctive is exactly how I would I would place you. <laughs> oh, very very co- very politically correct. Okay, I'll tell my wife you said I'm distinctive. Well, it's distin- distinctively, uh, re- you know, recognizable. Uh, that it's 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 a it's a mannerism that you wouldn't uh you wouldn't soon forget for sure. Especially considering that you're not ready to like beat somebody up or uh, get into a bar or brawl with them. <laughs> but you can you can totally agree that I am not what you think of for the person that does what I do. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, uh, I can, I can appreciate that though. And it's, it goes, you know, without saying that we don't have to live the, the, the stereotype that we lay for ourselves that, you know, we can act and do as we want and we can look as we want. Uh, and, and it's all, it's all good. I think that I don't want to go off on a tangent. I'm sure you've got a a, a track here. Absolutely not. No, we don't, we don't play anything here. (laughs) I would actually say that my, my ignorance to try and fit into a stereotype. And I've always classed myself, I classed myself as an educated man, but believe school had nothing to do with that. And I believe that it was my ignorance to conform to a stereotype that actually helped me get where I am. And I'm still amazed how everyone wants to be unique. Everyone wants to you know, stand outside the box and be different and to make an impression, yet the first thing they do when they get a job is dress like them, sound like them, walk like them. And I think I was lucky in the fact that before I suddenly started realizing what I had, I already had clients, yet I was always the the East London boy on a motorbike. I don't have a car. I ride motorcycles all the time. You know, I would turn up to, I would turn up to royalty. I would turn up to billionaires you know, on, on a motorcycle, you know, I'd walk into a meeting with a, with a crash helmet in my hand. I'd be like, right, what are we going to do? Um, and I would just get on with the job in hand. I didn't care about whether or not I had to wear this or look like this or, or sound like this. And it actually became beneficial for me. Um, so I think I was lucky there to be ignorant in that part. You know, I, I think there's a I think you're 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 right in the sense that like people do want to stand out, but they only want to stand out enough to be to still be accepted, right? So it's like, yeah, I want to I want to be I don't want to be like everyone, but I want to like I want to be myself, but I, but I want to be enough like everyone so that they still accept me. Because if I'm too radically different, I'm too ahead of my time. If I'm too much of myself, then they'll say, oh no you're too weird it's you know even though like 10 years later it'll be the the in thing and the acceptable thing to to do that thing uh that you're doing now and uh and i've written about that in my in my first book about how things start out as like you know uh uh, uh was it nerd culture turns into geek yep. culture turns into pop culture um and we see it all around us uh you know if you ever went to the movies in the last like 10 years to see a marvel film uh but but yeah man i you know i and i think that within your sense of and i i i believe in in doing what it is that that 
is important for you and, and how you want to act and how you want to dress and all of that. Um, and I think that when you're so polarizing to a point and you're coming to people and you're like, I'm like, you're, you're not trying to be cool. You're like you're trying to be yourself, but, but it's cool to them because they're like, you're so, you're not so far removed from what, the, what's familiar, right? Like you're not going in there dressed like a, a well, I don't want to stereotype anybody, but you're not you're not dressed uh in a in a fashion that that catches people it catches them off guard but it doesn't catch them off to the point where it's off putting does that make I'm sense i'm also yeah i'm also not challenging i remember i i love to learn uh and i love to watch and i love the fact that i'm constantly traveling and meeting different cultures and seeing how they perceive things that's where i really am so fortunate I remember being in Monaco and I'd brought a group of guys together and each one of these guys, you know, within a pack of I maybe like six or seven guys, there were like 10 aircraft, you know, 14 companies, bank balances that could buy a small island like England. So there was no reason whatsoever for anyone to be intimidated there. But when we first introduced them to each other and they started shaking hands, they were instantly checking out each other's watches. You know, who's got <laughs> the better one? And I just thought, that's weird. Now, when anyone ever looks me up, I'm, I'm in jeans and a black T-shirt 99% of the time. I'm here now, jeans and a black T-shirt. Uh, and if I want to get dressed up, I'll put a jacket on over my black T-shirt. But I was so stunned that these people were challenging each other. So when someone comes in, and I hate to use this word, but this is where the authenticity comes in. If you put on a $5,000 suit because you don't want to appear to be a schmuck, then you're now a schmuck wearing a $5,000 suit. But if you're wearing that $5,000 suit because, hey, I like it. It just, I like the way it feels. I like the way it makes me feel. You're wearing it and it's not wearing you. And people can see that. And if anyone gets any slight read, of something's just off, whether you're uncomfortable, whether you're flaking it, if someone just gets that little read, they get nervous and they back off, or worse, they put their shield up. So for me, I, I am a big ugly fella that's me. You're not there to date me. You're there to retain me. I'm there to do a job. And there's no doubt or dispute or confusion as to who I am, and therefore I'm very fortunate in the people that I do resonate with. And this is where you were saying earlier about being accepted. I think we could probably drink some whiskey and argue about that point. I'm quite happy in the fact that I'm not accepted in a lot of areas um, because it makes it much easier for me to live. And being me, funny enough, takes absolutely zero effort. Mm -hmm. And so I can focus all my energy on doing what I do for other people for those people I want to do it with, but by willing to not be accepted, I get accepted by those I respect. Absolutely. No, I, I, I completely agree. I, I think, uh, well, that goes back to the not judging a book by its cover, but everybody does it anyway. <laughs> in yeah, most cases. Yeah. And that's good. I, I actually, you're very funny because I actually posted today on my Instagram feed, that I love the fact that there are still those out there that do judge a book by its cover, and that's why those a-holes come nowhere near me. And that's that's good. I'm really pleased about that. 
Well, because you're also getting the people that are more genuine and more like, you know, and people use the word authentic, but like you're getting those people um, to, to come towards you versus the people that are that are superficial. And like like you were saying that the whole like, you know, am I wearing this suit because it makes me feel good and it, 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 re- it helps represent me versus it just makes me look good and I'm still like a schmuck. Yeah, yeah, it's, you're right. It's, I think people are searching and you said about being easy to understand. Um, people are looking for something that's not photoshopped. How many times, and it's really funny, the burger bars are just hilarious for this. You walk into a burger bar restaurant, it doesn't matter whether it's a bloody Wolfgang Puck or it's McDonald's, and you look up and you see on the picture the most delicious burger that you know full well is not going to appear in your hand in the next 30 seconds when you buy it. Yeah, you look <laughs> at this photoshopped, dynamic beauty of a burger and go oh my god it's like 14 inch high with double patties and then you get this little squash thing wrapped in tissue paper so i think people are getting annoyed and whether they admit it or not i think they're getting uh, frustrated with not being able to trust what they can see anymore I, I I would totally agree, especially when they're charging fifteen dollars for that burger. <laughs> yeah, 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 and it's it's and it's not just burgers; it's 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 everything. And I had a cake. Um, I'm trying to think of the bloody company now because I'd love to throw them under a bus. There was an <laughs> ice cream company that um, did these cakes. It wasn't Cold Stone. Um, I say that because I like Cold Stone. Um, but there was this company that did these uh, birthday cakes, and they had a book. And you look through this book and it was the most amazing cakes with all of these things on them with um, and they were birthday cakes, but they were made out of ice cream. And I remember buying one of these one day and I got a white cake with ice cream smeared all over it as a topping and then like a little Hot Wheels car on the top. And I went, well, that looks nothing like that. And the girl actually had the audacity to make me look at the asterisk tagline underneath it saying uh, cakes may not look like the picture above. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, my God, I've just bought this cake and she thinks it's acceptable to do that. So I just thought I found that funny for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> no, I, I, I'd hear that. Um, so I, I, I got to ask, like, Becoming from a, a background of of bricklayers and and uh, you even start you I mean starting out as a bricklayer, uh, how did your family take it when you're like I'm not going to be a bricklayer I'm going to go get this job and uh, oh oh my god this this is a funny story so my family are very raw um unschooled solid down to earth people. Okay, and it was in the late 90s, mid to late 90s. I got this deal. I was living in Asia and I got this deal when I was doing some work for Ferrari. Okay, I ride motorcycles. I had to drive a Ferrari and I would literally drive the Ferrari home. I know it sounds terrible. I know everyone's crying (laughs) for me, but I would drive it home, park it in the garage and then go out on the motorbike. But if I went to a meeting, I would drive the Ferrari. So when I came back from Asia, they told me where I had to go to pick up the Ferrari for while I was staying there. So I hadn't seen my family for ages. So I went over to see my parents. They don't live in a very nice neighborhood, um, but it's an old school British neighborhood. You know, you got your good and your bad. 
So I pulled up in this Ferrari, and my dad always liked cars. We never had any. We had a new car if it was under you know 15 years old. It was that kind of thing. Mm. So I brought over this Ferrari, and I brought my dad out to show him this car. And I showed him the car, and he's looking over this car, and he's like, that's beautiful. That's excellent. I said, sit in it. And he was like, oh, no, I can't sit in it. And I was like, sit in the bloody car. He was like, no, 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 I can't be doing that. And as he's walked around the car, and he said, this is beautiful, Steve. He said, I've always loved Lotus. And he actually looked at this car and thought this Ferrari was a Lotus. (laughs) And then I said to him, no, 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 Dad. He could not, in his head, he seemed to calculate two and two and think there was more of a possibility of me getting a Lotus, but no possibility of me getting a Ferrari. Therefore, this must be a Lotus. (laughs) Wow. And So we did that. So then I took, we went inside and I went through with them, you know, how I got this job in, in Hong Kong and how I got fired and how I was working on doors of nightclubs and how I started doing this concierge thing and I went through this whole story while my mum and dad just nodded and smiled and the dogs are yapping and running around. And my mum goes off to the kitchen after about an hour of me unloading my, my last like five to eight years of life. And my dad puts his hand on my knee, leans in and said, son, I've got to ask you this. And I thought, you know, what does he want? You know, and he turned to me and he said, are you selling drugs? <laughs> And I was like, you are mad. You know, you think the Ferrari's a Lotus and you don't think it's possible for me to be a concierge, but it's more than acceptable for me to be a drug dealer. He just couldn't fathom it. That was the mentality that I was dealing with growing up. (laughs) Unlike most entrepreneurs in the 80s and 90s, the parents can't quite fathom how you went out and made it yourself because let's be honest, that generation didn't. Mm. So, you know, it was was just a change of the guard. But... That was the introduction to my parents of what I did. I still think if you knocked on their door, he said, hey, my name's Joe, and did you know your son sells drugs? My dad would go, tell you so. I knew it. <laughs> you know? Oh, that's not funny. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's not, not funny, really funny, but it's, it's just the way the old school is. And you got to – the funny thing is that I actually – when I was a kid and I didn't want to be a bricklayer because my cousins, my uncles, my granddads, they were all on the building sites. And I didn't, I could see my family tree. That's why I wanted to get off. And the funny thing is, all the fight in me to get off that building site was because I thought this was the lowest point of my life. I thought this was the worst place for me to be. Who the bloody hell would ever want to work on a website? How can you get on? It's terrible. My family are poor, uneducated. I had resentment in me in my early 20s. And thank the Lord. It wasn't until my later 20s and, and maybe like 29, 30 that I suddenly realized my family were wealthier than I'd possibly realized. And they had taught me to do jobs, whether it be raining, cold, ice, snow. You say you're going to do a job, you get the job done. And when you're brought up in those kind of conditions with those kind of family values and morals, focusing it to getting you a couple of tickets into an Oscar party is a walk in the park compared to building a wall when it's bloody snowing and shit. So <laughs> it, it, it was really good for me to grow up and suddenly realize that there's a massive difference between richness and wealth. Rich, rich, as far as I'm concerned, is your dollar symbols. But wealth 
I never had to worry about being fed at night. I never had to worry about the shower not working. I never had to worry about the love and the support of my family. And I didn't realize until later on how wealthy that actually made me. Mm. Yeah, I mean, wealthy in knowledge, right? Like that's uh, and and wealthy in in uh, uh, work ethic and wealthy in uh, drive and vision. Uh, you know, and, and maybe they didn't necessarily uh, get the vision part, but but you clearly did, which is uh, I, I'm sure there's plenty of people that are very thankful for that. Yeah, I was very fortunate. So so what what's I mean you love motorcycles right and and I I mean I've had my share of motorcycles as well uh but what what uh what's your what's your favorite uh, kind of motorcycle to ride <laughs> So so I currently have 6 and each one of them is vastly different ranging from vintage Nortons and British bikes up through Harleys to um my Ducati race bike Every single one of the machines in here, and I'm actually talking to you from my garage. This is my man cave. This is where I do my thinking. Every single one of these bikes give me a different feedback. Now, if every single one of those bikes was exactly the same, I wouldn't need so many bikes. But every single one of them gives me something different. I can ride my 1975 Norton Commando around Mulholland doing 40 to 50 mile an hour. And it gives me this exhilaration of speed and, and going old school. And, you know, we call it the Duchess. It, you, you just feel like you're a British gentleman driving through the hillside of England, apart from the fact that it's not raining. And then another day, I'll jump on my race bike, go around a racetrack with your knee dragging. You're doing 130 mile an hour around a corner. So they're giving me different things. So it's hard to say which one's my favorite. Because each experience they provide me is special. Mm. No, that's definitely uh, understandable on a lot of different levels. Yeah, I like. I'm, I'm all for the experience. I'm not for. I'm all about what what it provides me, and not what I can actually hold. Mm. Yeah, I, I I agree. Uh, you know, money money's great to hold, but not not if it's not uh giving you the the experiences that you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. Or the emotion. Yeah. Well, sorry, the experience experience I I meant to encompass all of that, right? The the yep. emotion, the the feelings, the uh the chills, the everything. The whole the whole experience of you taking in uh what it is that you enjoy. And that to me is yep. so so, so, so important. Um, so I want to remind everyone that they're listening to the Dreamers podcast with your host, Joe Pardo. That's me. And I'm interviewing Steve Sims, this ex-bricklaying guy who looks like a bouncer, uh, but is helping people uh, experience these amazing experiences uh, all over the world. So, uh, so Steve, let, let's talk a little bit more about those experiences and how, how, do, how do people end up finding you? to get the like to and connecting because i'm really interested to to hear about that because you're it's like people want to box people into things and and you're like oh i i've done this part like set these parties up but i've also gotten people these kinds of tickets or set up this kind of experience for people like how how do you wind up being that person that's so so encompassing well 
the more you do, the more credibility you have. So whenever I go and want something done for one of my clients, I can go to this, this, you know, this zoo, this museum, this rock star and say, hey, I know we've never spoken before, but this is the kind of things that I've actually done in the past. I'd like this to be my new experience that I provide for a client. So I'm walking around with that toolbox of credibility. How the clients find me, and here's a, a funny story. In 2000, we had this newfangled, high technical thing called a website built. And do you remember the days that it was like $30,000 for like two or three pages? Um, <laughs> well, I had one of those websites built by this, by this little nerdy guy that was doing things called HTML. And we paid him. And after like, you know, three months, we got our three pages. We had forgot to put our phone number on there. <laughs> there was nowhere on this website where you could contact us. Nowhere at all. And I was in England and I was actually on a, a, a TV show because by this time, people had started hearing about these experiences that I was doing. And, you know, I was involved in these parties and all this kind of stuff. So I was getting a lot of media at the time. And we still do. And this girl that was interviewing me, and I'm talking with her, and I'm, you know, all excited, and I'm on British TV, morning breakfast TV. And she turns around, and she said, you're so exclusive, you don't even have a phone number on your website. And I looked at her, and I went, you know, that's right. We are super exclusive. You have to be introduced to us by someone else. And I got off the TV show and phoned up my team, and I'm like, why the hell do we not have a telephone number on the bloody website? <laughs> so it was a complete fluke. But since then, we've, you know, we've changed the website. We have more than three pages, and it's not costing us 30 grand now. Um, but we've never put a phone number on there. And we still maintain, if you want to contact us, you can apply for membership. We're a fee-based membership. You can apply. We'll speak to you. And if it works out, we'll accept you as a member. Or you've got to know someone. And that person has to introduce them. And usually it comes via me and they're like, hey, Steve, you know, I've got this buddy called Michael. I was telling him last night about what you do. He's apparently got some dreams and needs to chat with you. And so they make those introductions. So word of mouth, if I tell you I'm brilliant, it's called marketing and salesmanship. If someone else tells you I'm brilliant, it's called credibility. So we do all of our marketing and all of our uh, a client gathering from other people saying saying what uh, what's gospel and what's not. Ah, that's that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Do you at least have a contact form, like for people to even reach out at all? No, uh, we no email we, address, have, nothing at this point. No, you have to apply for membership, um, and we don't. We're five grand a year. Uh, you can't pay for membership online. You literally get an interview. So every single one of our uh, applicants gets interviewed, but we have no contact form uh, on our website. Wow. Wow. Okay. So, but there's an application on the website. Yeah. You can okay. go there and apply for membership and it'll say on there as well, how did you hear about us? And you can say, oh, I read about you in an article or I saw you on TV. And then one of our team will reach out and go, hey, Joe, thanks for the application. We'd like to initiate a 20 minute conversation just to see uh, if we're the right fit for you. We worked that out. One of our, Hosts will call you and go, okay, you heard about us. You know, what did, what did this do? Why, why did it excite you? Why do you think you want bluefish in your life? And we'll interview the client as to whether or not it's the right fit for us. Mm. No, I think that's awesome. Uh, 
and definitely uh you know different than probably most people (laughs) are trying uh or have tried in the past uh all based on an accident i i can i can sympathize with that i mean i put out my first uh dj album back in 2014 and like we spent weeks on the artwork for the cover and 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 for the casing and uh turns out i didn't put my name on it anywhere (laughs) <laughs> oh don't you love that yeah but, oh. but but if you google the name of the the album i'm the only thing that comes up so it's it's it you know it works it just doesn't quite it, you know it's like one of those lessons that you have to learn the hard way i guess i'm uh, a part of uh, i'm a part of joe polish's genius network and joe stands there and just spouts these little quotes and i love his quotes and I remember him turning around once and saying, the experience is only something you gain when something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And I just, that just resonated with me. And I thought everything I've ever learned is because something else went wrong. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, cause, so, so like I explained this to my, the youth that I work with in, uh, in Camden all the time. Uh, I'm like, you know, you're like, oh, well, how do I get experience? Cause that's what these, these, you know, employers are looking for. I was like, well, you gotta, you gotta make a lot of bad decisions to gain experience. You know, yeah, you gotta, yeah. you gotta get it wrong a bunch of times to gain that experience. And if you don't do anything, then you're not going to make any mistakes. And if you're not going to make any mistakes, you're not going to gain experience. So you, yeah. you gotta be willing to move forward. Right. Yeah. Um, it's gotta be done. And, and speaking of, of mistakes and missteps, what's been the biggest roadblock for you? Intelligence. Um, and that may sound really deep and stupid, but there's been times in my life where I've started to overanalyze things rather than just doing it. And, or I've employed people that, um, were really good or I felt really good and far smarter than me. And therefore, if you're smarter than me, you must be better than me. And therefore, I'll pay you to do something only to see it go wrong. So I try not to overthink rather than overfeel. If in my stomach it doesn't make sense, now I have got to the position where it will overrule my head. If my head's telling me this is a great idea, but there's something just fluttering in my belly, I will walk away from it now. Because my head's not always right compared to my instinct. Mm. So how, I've how, just felt I've just felt bad about people before, but read a resume and read a review and heard from people that he was good and gone. Oh well, he must be good. I will employ him. Yeah, yeah, great. Here you go, do that. Only for it to screw up and for me to go. Do you know why didn't I trust that little flutter? What do you do to counteract that? What? <laughs> so. Have you ever seen the video I did called the chug test? No, I haven't. So we did this. It came out spontaneously once. But the idea is that we interview people. Now, when we're interviewing people, we interview anyone in our circle, whether it be an accountant, a printer, a you know, laundromat, anyone that's in my life. I believe I'm interviewing them to be in my life. And so it came down to once I made a comment, someone said, well, do you like them? And I forget who we were looking to employ or take on or buy a service from. And I turned around and went, I'll have a whiskey with them. I'll chug it. 
you know, and it just meant that they were good enough that I would, I would have a drink with. So we came up with this silly little concept called the chug test. And all you got to do is ask yourself, pick anyone in your circle, anyone in your, in your solar system. If you're walking down the road on a high street, it's a semi-busy high street. The person's on the opposite side of the road walking the, the opposite way. So you are going to be parallel real quick. You can see them. They haven't seen you. Do you, A, look in the window and watch that reflection until they walk safely past and you've avoided eye contact? Or B, cross the road, go, hey, Joe, how you doing? Should we grab a coffee, a whiskey, a beer and chug a drink with them? Which one of those two do you do? That will tell you very simplistically and rawly who should be in your life and who shouldn't. And I started asking myself, would I, would I avoid that person? Yeah, I do. And then it'd be a case of, well, I'm sure I can get someone else to do what they're doing that I wouldn't avoid. And as we all know, we have no fear or care or negativity about phoning our friends. First to you now, or after this, phone up one of your mates and tell him I was cool. You'd have no problem getting on the phone and dialing. And when you're dialing, you'll be smiling because this person's a friend. Yet if the other person you're now about to phone is not a friend, you're apprehensive. So you become a different person. You already don't like them. Therefore, the conversation's not good. And then after that, if you speak to someone that is a friend, that friend is now thinking, well, what's wrong with Joe? Because they can sense you're not right. That is cancer. And it grows. So get rid of anyone in your life you're not willing to cross the road and have a drink with. And you'll only be surrounding yourself with people that put you in a good place. Keep your motivation there. Keep your spirit there. I and mean, that's I, the chug test. <laughs> I mean, I think that is amazing uh, advice. And and uh, <laughs> it, it, I know it's certainly true, though. I mean, there's plenty of people that uh, you know I have had to deal with. Uh, in my life and and that I've seen other people have to deal with and you can you can definitely and I know and I can feel like that I'm different around those people yeah um, and I, I'm just like yeah like this is this is okay but like if I had my choice I wouldn't be around this person right now there's a lot of people vying for your attention and your dollars and so you have the ability to pick and choose who you actually do business with absolutely absolutely um, so Steve, when you were growing up in, uh, in jolly old England, is that, is that how they say it? Jolly old England? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, how, what was your childhood dream growing up? Um, I don't know if I really had one. Uh, I definitely wasn't a dreamer as a kid. I was more of a questioner than, um, a dreamer. I would always, you know, how come they're doing that? How come they've got a new car and we haven't got a new car? How come we're not having this every night and they are? You know, I was always questioning things. And I remember my mum, one of the things that she used to like to do was go to London and go window shopping at about 5 o'clock at night because in England all the shops closed at 5.30. So she would like to go window shopping at about 5 o'clock at night down the really high-end streets and just look in the windows. But every time I'd say to her, oh, we're going in? It'd be like, no, we can't go in there. Why not? That's for other people. And do you remember in the 80s where there used to be like doormen outside stores like Gucci? 
Mm, I was born in '86, so no. '86, right? Okay, <laughs> but there was there was a period when everyone was wearing clothing, and if you look back into that period, if it wasn't labelled, they weren't wearing it, and. Mm. There were like doormen outside, like Gucci and Tiffany and stuff like that. You know, you still have security now, but it's inside. But there was a time when it, they would actually protrude that security to try to appear like a, an affluent club or something. And it was all the intimidation. Luxury companies back in the 80s and 90s were successful based on the intimidation. You know, to, you can't walk in here unless you're one of them. It was that kind of intimidation. Nowadays, they've got smart because they know that uh, with the entrepreneurs growing and, you know, the guy, I remember speaking to a guy from Ferrari once and he said, the guy that comes in on a Saturday wearing a suit can't afford a Ferrari. The guy that's coming in on a Tuesday with shorts and sneakers, you know, he's probably got three. So things <laughs> have had to change over the years and we've had to, they've had to become a lot more open to people walking in. But the old days, and here's a classic movie, Pretty Woman. That old system is death and cancer to any real, uh, any uh, retail outlet now. You have to be willing to look after anybody because you have no idea what they're carrying, who they are, and what they've come from. So I wasn't a guy that sat there going, oh, I want to have a Ferrari. I wanted my motorbike to work every day, which it often didn't because it was a big pile of heaping crap that just like to puke oil everywhere. Um but uh, that was as dreamy as I was. But I always questioned, why couldn't we go to that restaurant? And when it would be, we don't have the money for that. I'd be thinking to myself, well, let's get a job that gives us more money. You know, there's the solution. Um, but no, you don't do that because my grandfather was a bricklayer, so you'll be a bricklayer. Well, that made no sense to me. So I was a, I was a doubting Thomas. I was questioning life more than I was dreaming. And I think... I think I've always been that guy. You know, I went through a period uh, probably in like 04. We had just come off of being the official concierge to the Grammys. Uh, we were doing a whole bunch of high-end stuff, Kentucky Derby, New York Fashion Week. I was doing a ton of stuff around Monaco Grand Prix. I actually started dressing different because I thought to myself, hang on, if I'm here at the top of my game, well, I better not bloody just turn up on the back of a motorcycle wearing jeans and a black T-shirt. I actually shifted away and started wearing some of those suits that I told you about earlier, only to see that a drop in my reaction with my, my friends appeared and it actually had an impact on my finances as well because I wasn't being real to me. Luckily, I went back to being me. So I always try to analyze things. And the motorcycling, funny enough, that helps me because every time I get a new motorbike, the first thing I do is I look at it and I go, what can kill me? The frame's not going to kill you. The gas tank's not going to kill you. But the brakes not working are going to kill you. The tire pressure is going to kill you. So I always look at the weakest link that can do the most damage. And I do that with my life. I mean, that sounds... It, it sounds like you were dreaming. You just didn't know about what yet. No, you're right. Yeah, I would take that. I, I hadn't been. And, and again, this was back in the 80s and 90s where we didn't have 400 TV stations to show us what Kim Kardashian was snorting that night. So, you know, we didn't have the chance to see how the other half lived. We had four channels, I think. So this was a period where we were we were ignorant to that other side of life. 
other than when my mum used to take me up to London. Hmm. So, Steve, with that said, what, what are your dreams for the future looking like? I want to increase my wealth. Um, and my wealth is about having people in my circle, um, having, you know, my good food in my, my kid's belly, making sure they're warm, making sure they're loved, making sure that there's gas in the tank and there's whiskey available. So as long as you've got all of that, it makes no difference if I want a billion dollars tomorrow, I'm already wealthy. But if I start cheating my friends, if I start losing out on the security and, and loving my family, then that's where the wealth just goes to pot. Well, Steve, I think that you're on a well uh, a well path to getting there. Uh, you know, being able to to be confident in yourself and and in your decisions to to act and to dress and to motor around the way that you see fit is uh, is is definitely not only a good start but a continued uh, a continuation of of greatness that you've you've built upon. I mean, you know, when I when you look at I mean, and he's a cliched example, but you look at like Steve Jobs, he wore the same shirt every single day. And there was a reason yeah. for it, right? The reason it was uh, based around uh, was it a, a Japanese uh, thing, if I'm not mistaken, uh, where yep. it's like it, you take that decision making out of what are you going to wear. I mean, I wear a gray V neck almost almost every day because <laughs> I don't want to have to think about it. Yeah, it's one less element. It's one less decision. You know, uh, so so. Uh, I know. I know. We talked uh, talked about how people uh, can't get a hold of you, but but how can people connect with you, Steve? Uh, so there are there are two uh, there are two websites. There's thebluefish.com, which is where we do all the the magical and fantastical, and that's that's got the usual kind of Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff. And then I'm writing. We I mentioned to you earlier about my book. I have a website called stevedsims.com. And that basically is me spouting on about my philosophies. And I bung a load of my, my videos up there, the chug test videos up there. So I bung a load of my media, this podcast I'll end up putting up there. So, you know, that's where it's all about. That's where it's about my opinions, views on life and what I've learned and kind of got scarred from. Um, so stevedsims.com, that actually does have a contact element on it. So if you wanted to reach out to me to kind of, you know, you know, shoot the breeze and you can do on there and the bluefish is where you get the uh, the magical to happen oh that's awesome i will definitely have those links uh and of how to get a hold of you on dreamerspodcast.com uh you know steve thank you so much for taking the time uh to be a guest here on the dreamers podcast day I, I really do appreciate it and i was wondering is there any last thoughts you'd like to share before we wrap up here yeah don't overthink things do it no one ever drowned by falling in the water they drowned by staying there <laughs> i couldn't, couldn't agree more um if you've enjoyed this episode of the dreamers podcast and uh you know have gotten something out of this interview with steve or one of the past episodes uh you know there's a lot of great things you could do you could uh you know subscribe on itunes or review it but but really all i ask is that you just share it with a friend so they can get something out of it uh it would mean the world to me steve thanks again for taking the time today to be on the dreamers podcast i really do appreciate it Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Dreamers Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Dreamers Podcast. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash dreamerspodcast. 
If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the Dreamers Podcast, please send an email to j at jpar.co. This podcast is copyright 2014 by jpar.co.